Hey, crew, before we get started today, if you're at Las Vegas Con this weekend, have a great time. Wish we were there, too. But instead, we're hard at work in the podcast minds, working on a new project and a new development for the Just Enough Trope Network, of which this podcast is a member. We're also welcoming a new podcast to the network, a podcast hosted by myself and Existence is Futile podcast host and former Enterprising Individuals guest, Gooey Fame, a show called Backtrekking. I won't say a lot here. It's pretty self-explanatory. If you check it out at at Backtrekking, T-R-E-K-K-I-N-G on Twitter, Backtrekking is joining the Just Enough Trope family and will be a big part of some of the new developments that we've got coming up for the network. So look forward to that. This week on the show, I'm talking with writer and artist Bonnie Liston about the TNG episode, The Price, and we had a great conversation. We had a very fun conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Just a note, this episode was recorded before it was announced at San Diego Comic-Con that Marina Sirtis would be returning to the role of Counselor Troy for the new series Picard, so we don't reflect that in our conversation. But the rest of the conversation is all accurate. I would vouch for it myself, and I hope you enjoy it. Don't forget you can follow us on social media at at EISTpod and also on our Enterprising Individuals Facebook page. That's it for now. See you next week. And with that, let's get underway. It's worked so far, but we're not out yet. I want to know what you're thinking. There are some things you can't hide. I want to know what you're feeling. Tell me what's on your mind. Hailing Frequencies Open, and welcome to Enterprising Individuals, the Star Trek discussion podcast that boldly goes into excruciating detail about the series, characters, and stories of the Star Trek universe. I'm your host, Aaron Coker, a.k.a. Caliban, and I say, if you can't get a real chocolate sundae in the 24th century, then what is it all for? Let the Dominion have it. (laughs) I'm joined on this episode by Bonnie Liston. Bonnie is a writer, a visual artist and graphic designer, as well as a podcaster. She's also a journalist. Her work has been featured on NewMatilda.com, in the Hobart Magazine, and on the MarySue.com. Bonnie, welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you here. Permission to come aboard granted. Today we'll be talking about The Price, the eighth episode of the third season of Star Trek The Next Generation. When Star Trek TNG debuted in the fall of 1987, it featured many new additions to the Trek universe, like androids, visors, replicators, holodecks, and scants. But the crew roster of the Enterprise-D also featured in a position unfamiliar to original series fans, the ship's counselor. In the minds of Gene Roddenberry and the writers of the new Trek series, the mental well-being of the crew would have the same importance as their physical health, and the ship's counselor would serve as psychiatrist, ambassador, and advisor to the commander of the Enterprise. But the character that assumed that role on the show, Lieutenant Commander Troy, would prove to be controversial both in TNG's early days and with current fans. The writers didn't know what to do with her, and some fans found her to be weak, over-sexualized, and underwritten. But despite that, the character of Troy, as embodied by Marina Sirtis, has continued to serve as an inspiration for legions of female sci-fi fans and signified the first real stirrings of Trek's attempt to make good on its promise of a future where people of any race or gender could enjoy equal respect and opportunity. But we'll talk about that a little later in the show. First, Bonnie, I always ask new guests to the show about their backstories. How did you become a Star Trek fan? Um, I probably didn't have a choice when I was very <laughs> young. My father and uh, me and my siblings used to watch, you know, a Star Trek rerun whenever it was on. Yeah. So um, that was during the 90s and early thousands. So it was mainly Next Gen and Voyager. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I do know that I watched all of the films at some point when I'm too young to remember knowing about it. Um, all of them? Uh, no, the, the, um, the original. Because... I am so deeply in love with the voyage home. I'm so into <laughs> whales. And people will be like, oh, that's cool. Why, why did you learn about how great whales are? I'm like, oh, you know, Star Trek. Uh, yeah, right. The There'd be now. whales here. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, yeah, I'm like, they're great creatures. They're very sensitive. Um, they're psychic. and <laughs> <laughs> Of course. Are they psychic or Spock just psychic with them? Uh, they probably helped out a little bit, sure. They're very independent creatures. They're not the hell your whales. Yeah, right, right. 
And then when I was in high school, they used to show the original series at 11 o'clock at night on uh, Channel Go, and I used to stay up and watch that. Um, and, yeah, just developed from there. I'm a big fan. Is there – I think you're our second Australian guest on the show, but I'm not sure that I've ever asked before. What's Star Trek fandom like in Australia? Not as organized, I would suggest. Yeah. Um, a lot of my friends enjoy it, and I enjoy it. Um so my father must have watched it when it was on originally. Um, sure. Back in the '60s on his color television. Ooh. <laughs> well, that's what it was for. Yeah. yeah. A lot of Australian culture is just American culture <laughs> ten years later. So yeah. I think that everyone's pretty down with Star Trek. Yeah, I spoke to a, a UK Trek fan, and he was talking about how it's really become more of a phenomenon, like being a Trek fan, as like going to conventions and just sort of being out as a geek is everywhere. But he said that like UK fans would never dress their dog up in a costume. Like you'd never see that. No. Too reserved. No. How do you get the show there? Do you guys have Netflix? Uh, we do have Netflix now, yes. And uh, most <laughs> of Star Trek is on Netflix. Um, when I was little, there was the divide between All-Star Kids and Free-to-Wear Kids, which oh. is I was on the All-Star side, and that's how I could watch Star Trek. Okay. Uh, because, like I said, they're only on Free-to-Wear. Uh, they only had the original series at 11 o'clock at night. Sure, Okay. <laughs> Whenever I just figured like that you guys would have, you know, um, I don't know, Sky or something like the BBC. Whenever I talk to Australian fans, they're always mentioning these networks that I'm like, okay, I've never heard of that. But you guys seem to have all the shows. <laughs> we get them eventually. Eventually. Is there – I've heard about like the sort of like gatekeeping sort of culture that exists like from the Australian sort of government to uh, the public in terms of like – you know, video games are kind of highly restricted. I don't know if that extends to shows as well. Is there stuff that you, they just say you can't have? There's a lot of licensing things. And this is true with Australian Netflix as well. We have barely half of anything hmm. um, that other Netflix have. And it's because I, it's the copyright laws. It's why Australia is one of the greatest pirating networks is because we never get anything when it airs. It's always got to be negotiated with a couple of our big, um, mainly Foxtel, they're our biggest cable owner and they're always oh, okay. buying the exclusive rights to things, but okay. not everyone has Foxtel. Okay, so it's like a lack of commun or, um, a lack of competition situation. Yeah, basically. Okay. Well, I know that you're an artist and a designer and you've got a cool Instagram on which I saw an awesome watercolor you did of Michael Burnham, which if you want to put that on a shirt, I'll be the first to line up to buy one. Uh, what did you think of Discovery so far? Oh, I'm loving it. Yeah. Um, Actually, with the uh, Australian fandom, I am the only person I know in all of Tasmania watching it, except <laughs> for one other boy who I've had to become friends with just so I can talk to someone about it. <laughs> right. Um, but, yeah, the, the less other people like it, the more obsessed I'm getting with it. So I'm a big fan. <laughs> Bringing people together. Uh, well, exactly. <laughs> that's cool. I was surprised and pleased to see uh, Melissa George appear as Vina on Discovery in the second season. You know, for all the casting news that was coming out for season two, they kept that one pretty quiet. Yeah, I liked that too. That whole arc was a really interesting kind of... I'm doing a hand gesture. That's not good radio. <laughs> that's great radio. Uh, kind of blending of the original series and the Discovery in a way that I think worked better than some of their other uh, attempts. Were you familiar with the, the cage or the menagerie in TOS? Oh, yeah, I'm familiar with the cage and the menagerie. Sure. Um, I liked how the special effects changed between the uh, previously on and the real yeah. the real episode. That was great, yeah. I, liked, I think I compared that on a previous show to like when Doctor Who does something like that. Because Doctor Who, of course, has been running for over 50 years. Uh, uh, yeah, when you have the original versus the Mondosian Cybermen. And yeah, right. Like, now they're actually robots instead of men in um, some skin-tight um, plastic. Yeah, ski masks and holding cardboard boxes, yeah. Yeah. What do you think about the announcement of some of the new shows that are uh, being developed for the Trek universe? Um, like Picard. Yeah. Um. I am cautiously interested. Okay. I, I try to remain optimistic about everything. I think that I would love Picard if maybe they brought back Troy. That would be great. <laughs> For sure. I mean, she's out there. And, of course, uh, she appeared in um, in uh, Voyager as well. And I guess in um, yeah. Enterprise, but we don't talk about that. So, yeah, I think that she's... <laughs> I've seen Enterprise. 
Oh, okay. Well, then, uh, no spoilers for that. But yeah, I think that she would be a good <laughs> character to sort of carry that through line uh, as well as Picard. Uh, I'm also cop- uh, cautiously optimistic. I mean, I have to be because it's my job. But I, I like what they've done so far, and I think they're. I think we're in good hands. Yeah, I mean, once you've got Patrick Stewart in there, it's always going to be good to <laughs> yeah, watch. Yeah, right. <laughs> At least it'll be entertaining. Uh, you are a podcaster as well. How would you describe your podcast, Australian Gothic? Um, Australian Gothic is um, about parts of Australian history that I think are very interesting and are kind of dark and spooky <laughs> because there's a general um, reputation for Australia to being very sunny and, you know, laid back and having a barbie on the beach, yeah. uh, which is not exactly true. We, like all countries, are quite awful. But um, <laughs> I like exploring the darker sides and kind of exploring how those are very much extant in our culture today. So for something like um, Picnic at Hanging Rock, which I am doing an episode on soon, cool. is a tale about a couple of schoolgirls who go missing yeah. on a picnic. Uh, and it's all about how the Australian landscape is beautiful but terrifying and eats people. And I think that you really see that in Australian culture because uh, the bush is pretty deadly. Yeah, I was listening to a couple episodes and it – has kind of, um, I think it fits into the vein of, vein of like a true crime pro- podcast, but it's like a true history podcast, really. Yeah, one of my many, many degrees is in history, so <laughs> I like to, to talk about it in a way where I can force other people to listen. Well, why did you choose that specific episode, The Price, to discuss today? Well, um, I wanted to talk about a Troy episode, and I thought The Price was good because a lot of Troy-focused episodes are either all things that are not fun to make fun of, like forced pregnancy or mind violations, or they're quite good, but they don't feature a lot of the things that maybe we want to talk about when in regards to Troy's character. Yeah. So I thought The Price is good because it's kind of a mixture of both. It's a, a Troy-focused episode. It's from her perspective. Um, it's not entirely successful in being a good episode, but there are a lot of interesting bones to it. Yeah. And with media, I really like to see what I can take from it. I like an interactive media experience where perhaps the writers fall short, so I have to do a bit of writing myself. Okay. I can see that. Something I've been thinking about a lot lately is that in hindsight, I think we think of Trek, uh, especially the next generation, as being the real start of this uh, great feminist movement in sci-fi TV. Like we've got male and female characters and the females are equal to the men and they're taking care of business and saving the day. But in reality, to me, TNG often feels like it was just that. It was the beginning of modern sci-fi feminism, but it's not quite as feminist as people remember it to be. Well, no. I mean, um, Gates McFadden was fired uh, in the first season yeah. because of her feminist ideals. I would say it's it's actually one of the more turbulent. Um, it was kind of the birthing movement, very painful. Pain, yeah, uh, painful for sure. In the attempt to get some feminism on there. Yeah. Well, we're talking about the TNG episode, The Price. As I said, it was the eighth episode of the third season. It first aired on November 13th of 1989, and it was written by Hannah Louise Shearer. Shearer was a writer and executive story editor for the first season of TNG, and she wrote several episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation, including When the Bow Breaks, We'll Always Have Paris, and she wrote the story for Pen Pals. She also wrote the story for Q-Less, the DS9 episode where Q visits the station. It was directed by Robert Shearer, no relation to Hannah, Robert Shearer directed many episodes of TNG, as well as one DS9 episode and two Voyager episodes. The first episode he directed for Trek was The Measure of a Man, which we've talked about previously on this show. And it's interesting, he got his start as an actor and a dancer in Hollywood, appearing in films with Abbott and Costello, The Andrews Sisters, and Julie Andrews, again, no relation, before moving behind the camera. And he won an Emmy Award in 1964 for his work on The Danny Kaye Show. The star date for this episode is 43385.6, and your assignment, Bonnie, if you can, is to give us a 25-word synopsis of The Price. Okay, so the Enterprise is involved with some tumultuous negotiations over the rights to an apparently stable wormhole, complicated by Ferengi scheming, scientific uncertainty, and Counselor Troy's romantic connection with the mysterious and untrustworthy negotiator Devani Rao. Yes. 
<laughs> we'll talk about him uh, as we go on here. Um, here's some interesting facts about the memory banks from this episode. The working title of this episode was A Price Far Above Rubies, which is a biblical allusion from Proverbs 31.10. Uh, the price in this case refers to the value of a virtuous woman. The phrase is also part of the Kiddush, the toast which begins the Sabbath meal in Jewish tradition. And it was the title of a 1998 Renee Zellweger film, which focuses on a Hasidic Jewish community in Brooklyn. I haven't seen that one. Uh, several scenes from the episode's initial draft never made it to the screen, including a scene where Chief O'Brien is in session with Troy talking about his girlfriend, Mitzi. Uh, there's a scene where Wesley is talking to Troy about a time that his mother wouldn't let him go to an overnight party in the holodeck, which that was the right call, Bev, on that one, I think. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's like a holodeck lock-in? I don't know. Uh, and there was a scene giving us more info about the Chrysalians, who do not appear in this episode, or really at all in the series, since they're not in this episode. And I always thought their name sounded like Chris's aliens. Like maybe we just kind of ran out of steam on that one. Mm. My husband's name is Chris. These are Chris's aliens. Yeah. <laughs> Christmas aliens. Or, or Christmas aliens, maybe. Yeah, they're very festive. Yeah. Uh, the infamous workout scene was actually shot on the engineering set. That's uh, the central hall of engineering with the pool table removed. And then the other elements are hidden by some mirrors. And I feel like they did it in a hurry. I don't know a lot about TV production, but the sound is not great in that scene. There's a lot of echoing and kind of huffing and puffing. That that scene is so much. <laughs> I've heard people say that it is like, oh boy, and I'm just, you know, I don't know who said this. I just read it online. Uh, but that it's the best scene. And I've heard people say, oh, my God, it's the worst scene. But you, your opinion, so much. It's it's the most scene. It's maybe. most. It is the most most scene. OK, I think I can I can get down with that. Uh, this episode is the first to firmly establish that the galaxy is divided into four quadrants. It's also the first appearance of the Ferengi pod shuttlecraft. And it's the episode where Troy's love for chocolate is established. Uh, in the later season three episode, Menage Troy, we learned that the Ferengi brain cannot be telepathically read by Betazoids or other creatures. Um, but in this episode, Consular Troy says that she can sense Diamond Goss's thoughts. And it's the only time that we see a Betazoid mind reading a Ferengi in the series. Um, actually, in the Ferengi's debut episode, The Last Outpost, Troy says that she cannot read the Ferengi captain's emotions. Michael Piller, uh, the storied Michael Piller, a producer and writer for Trek, thought that the script for the episode was great. But he wasn't really satisfied with the end result. He did say that he thought it was a wonderful vehicle for the character of Troy. Let's talk about the guest stars for this episode. And there's a couple. Matt McCoy appears in the episode as Devanoni Rall. McCoy has been a pro prolific TV and film actor since the 80s. And he's probably best known as the second actor to play the eccentric Lloyd Braun on Seinfeld. Um, he was in a couple episodes. He's the guy that tries to buy Jerry all this Chinese gum because Jerry says he likes this Chinese gum and he won't stop giving it to him. Is Seinfeld as much of a thing in Australia as it is uh, in America? Um, I'm, yeah, probably. For, <laughs> um, I'm gonna sound mean, but for probably for my parents, they see okay, it. Okay, okay, all right. No, I don't think that's mean. I, I think that's probably fair. Much of it at all. Yeah. Okay. He also appeared as Sergeant Rick Lessard in Police Academy Five and Six, and as Brett Chase, the star of Badge of Honor, the dragnet-like show in the 1997 film L.A. Confidential, and he's currently. I discovered a pitch man for AARP Hartford Auto Insurance. If you search for his name, it's like one of the first things that comes up. And I just want to just, as an actor talking to an actor, I wanted to talk about the way that he's aged. Like, I'm not trying to get down on anybody's appearance, but often actors look younger than they are. You know, they do everything they can to preserve their looks. And he is in a auto insurance commercial for older people but he looks every year of his 62 years like he looks like a guy who has just sort of aged gracefully into this sort of older looking man it's a stark difference from the kind of fresh-faced guy you see in this episode oh well that's nice yeah there's nothing wrong with that but you look at like at a guy like tom cruise who's just grabbing on with both hands to the plane yeah. to the plane but also to his youth the plane is his youth the plane is his youth the ss <laughs> tom cruise's youth yes uh, Elizabeth Hoffman appears in the episode as Bhavani. Hoffman is probably best remembered as Beatrice, the mother of the titular sisters in the NBC drama from the early 90s. Although not by me, I don't really remember that show. She made many TV guest appearances throughout the 80s and 90s, and she played Eleanor Roosevelt in the 1983 TV miniseries The Winds of War, and she reprised that role in the sequel series War and Remembrance. Both were based on novels by Herman Wolk. 
Uh, just a note for Discovery fans, this episode introduced the race, the Barzans, to Star Trek. Uh, Bhavani is one, of course. And the character of Commander Nan, seen in Star Trek Discovery Season 2, is a Barzan as well. And she supports the same distinctive breathing apparatus. Yeah, I noticed that. I was going to look it up, but then I didn't. They do a really subtle thing in the episode. It's not quite Darth Vader-esque, but whenever she's on screen, there's a little sort of shallow sound of, you know, breathing or like a little, you know, inhale-exhale sound. That's cool. I think it's a great alien design. Yeah, it's a cool alien design. And we get it. She vapes. We get it. Uh, (laughs) Castillo Guerrera plays Seth Mendoza in the episode. He's the kind of Cheech Marin-looking Federation negotiator guy. Uh, I found out that he was an Argentinian actor, and he's had a long list of TV and film credits uh, continuing to this day. Uh, He's appeared several times on the CBS series Madam Secretary as Mexican President Mario Zaragoza. Uh, One of his first roles was in a 1979 Shakespeare in the Park production of Coriolanus, which also starred Morgan Freeman and a young Denzel Washington. I found that was interesting. Damn, what a cast. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> you never know. Like It's sort of like a six degrees of, uh, of Shakespeare in the Park, some of the famous people that have uh, done Shakespeare in the Park in New York. Well, as a Shakespeare in the Park alumna myself, I'm, I'm hoping that's, you know, good juju. That'll be, yeah. <laughs> Let's see. Let's connect you to Castillo Guerrera. Ever work with Denzel Washington? Not yet. Not yet. Okay. Well, in the future, we can play the game again. Scott Thompson appears as Goss, the Ferengi. Thompson is a character actor who played various film and TV roles, including the role of Sergeant Chad Copeland in the first Police Academy and a Police Academy 4 and 5. A lot of Police Academy is coming up a lot in this episode. Kevin Peter Hall. Yeah. Do you ever see the Police Academy films? No. You're not missing anything. <laughs> One man makes sound effects with his mouth. That is a big part of them, yeah. Do you have uh, your own uh, national tradition of goofy police officers in a show or movie? Uh, We've got the bill. The bill. That's England. That's England. What's Water Rats? Water Rats? Is that the the show about cops in Sydney? I think so. I I have an idea that that's Australian. set in Sydney and all other television is set in Melbourne. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's the two places that they're set. <laughs> yeah. I think the only, the only two places that exist in Australian television. <laughs> right. And and just the outback in general. Um, oh, yeah. I think the only uh, uh, other Australian show I know is Farscape, which I talk about all the time on my Star Trek show and I probably shouldn't do now. I've seen uh, the pilot episode of Farscape just this year. Really? Because someone's like, I've got really weird Australian accents. And I was like, yes. I'm interested. <laughs> that they're weird, just that they're not like passing as Australian or they're from uh, a weird part of Australian or they're just. Oh, no, that they're like trying not to be Australian. Oh, I see. Okay. But you can hear it underneath. And I just love hearing an Australian accent on television. I'm like, finally, someone who talks normal. <laughs> right, exactly. And Kevin Peter Hall plays Leor. Uh, he is the seven-foot-tall alien in the episode. Uh, he was often cast in roles that emphasized his size. He actually played the Predator in the first two Predator films, uh, taking over the role from Jean-Claude Van Damme uh, during the filming of the first film. He also starred in the short-lived NBC sci-fi comedy Misfits of Science. And I was surprised to discover that he, he was apparently one of the actors considered for the role of Jordi LaForge and also for the role of Data, which... Would have been very different um, to have like a, a seven foot tall da- uh, Jordy trying to crawl through those tubes. <laughs> a seven foot tall Jordy hanging out with Brent Spiner as Data. Yeah, right. Or if he was Data, that would have been weird too. Although when I think about it, Data's kind of like the good Frankenstein, or I'm sorry, Frankenstein's monster. And I think in the book, you know, the monster is described as having gargantuan proportions. Yeah, you know? he's like seven foot. Yeah, he's very tall. So that might have worked. That's a lot more the your uh, uh, white uh, makeup, uh, pancake makeup budget goes up. Though. Yeah. He also played uh, Harry in Harry and the Hendersons, and he rep- uh, reprised the role for the television adaptation uh, until he was forced to step down from the role due to illness, and he eventually died in 1991 from complications of AIDS. He had contracted HIV from a blood transfusion in the mid-80s. Oh. Yeah, it's too bad. We didn't know a lot about that back then. Uh, Dan Shore appears in the episode as Dr. Eridor. Shore is an actor, writer, and director who got his start on the New York and London stages, and he's probably best known for the role of Billy the Kid in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. He also appeared as the character Ram in the 1982 film Tron, and he'd reprised the role of Eridor in the Voyager season three episode False Prophets, 
when we learn the ultimate fate of Eridor and his co-pilot, Cole. Oh, that's good. I was worried about them. Have you seen that episode? No, I'm going to have to check it out after this because it ends and Picard's like, yeah, you'll see him. Yeah, yeah, screw those guys. (laughs) Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. It's, uh, I won't spoil anything, but basically, you know, the Voyager who are themselves catapulted into the Delta Quadrant, they run across a planet where they discover two Ferengis up to Ferengi stuff. Oh, that's good. As long as they're still scheming. Yeah, I think it's interesting that this episode weirdly like contains the seeds for the next two shows. In Yeah, I was thinking that too. All the talk about like a stable wormhole and I'm like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you've got... I wonder if the writers were like planning this for Deep Space Nine already. Yeah, I hope that Hannah got paid in some way <laughs> off of this because she basically, yeah, she, she's got the idea of the stable wormhole and then a ship that is stranded, you know, very far from home. So uh, yeah, uh, I think Trek kind of knew where it was going after this. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about the episode itself. You know, as I brought up earlier, TNG gets a lot of points for its feminist characters. um, And I think that it is in a lot of ways very feminist, but I don't think it's quite as feminist as people remember. Or at least I think that that feminist intent, which I think is there, doesn't show up on the screen as much as you would be led to believe. Yeah, I think they try to be feminist, but they don't have a perhaps thorough understanding of the building blocks that would require them to be more successfully feminist. Which is strange, and I wonder about the causes of that, at least at the time. Um, I think that as a show, like they were really trying to flip the script on TV sci-fi in a lot of ways. But it's got these rock-solid roots in the original series and the whole traditions of Atomic Age sci-fi. You've got the same crew on both shows, uh, the original series and TNG in a lot of ways. You've got Roddenberry and David Gerald and DC Fontana and Bob Justman. They're all ostensibly liberal personalities, but you know, they're mostly men, and they're still mostly trying to write the characters and stories of the earlier era, at least in the first season or two. That's very true. I mean, feminism changed a lot between the 60s and the 80s. Mm-hmm. And if um, yeah. you know, you're sticking with the same crew, the ideas that may have been very revolutionary at the time had already started to, to age and date a bit by the 80s. Yeah. The anecdote that immediately comes to mind is the idea that Gene Roddenberry's like, I got this idea for a character. She's got four breasts. I know. Oh, and apparently she was a sex-crazed hermaphrodite as well. (laughs) Right. Yeah. um, Take. Yeah, it's like, Gene, you're you're 100% Gene. Try to dial it down to maybe like 75, 60% Gene. Yeah, never go full Gene. Yeah, he's full Gene in this one. It's the kind of thing that if you were going to make something up about Gene, it'd be like, okay, but what'd he really do? Oh, that's what he did? Yeah, DC Fontana saves the day again. Yes, she is never done saving the day. Uh, the female characters on TNG, you know, at at this point at least, they seem to cleave to fairly conventional female roles. You've got the the nurturer in Troy. You know, you've got a literal mother and healer in Crusher, um, the kind of, unfortunately, you know, henpecky wife in Keiko. And when the characters, the female characters break from those roles, I feel like they do so very self-consciously. Like Dr. Pulaski, she's a real ball buster and she drinks whiskey with the dudes. And Yar is... Usually this totally sexist, you know, tough chick stereotype. Yeah. Not, there are always a response to some kind of female stereotype rather than existing as characters, perhaps without an examination of gender involved. Yeah. It's just like, what's, what's the opposite of that? Yeah. Mm. Can men just not write women, (laughs) at least men that lived through World War II? Um, I don't want to be sexist, but I'm not sure men can write. (laughs) Well, that's not sexist. No, no. I think that... No, I don't know what I think. I'm not going to say anything mean about men. You're inviting me on your lovely podcast. I could just cut it out. If it's too mean. <laughs> uh, no, I think that, yeah, sometimes when men write female characters, they're definitely thinking about them as female characters rather than just characters. Yeah. I think the agenda matters a lot, too. Like, why put female characters in your script clearly but why are you writing the female character this way and why are you putting her through what you're putting her through like what's what's your end game well i think every time they do write an episode for troy uh it it suffers because they're like what's a female thing that troy could do (laughs) for example in this episode i was thinking like why was Riker white man promoted to be in the negotiator when Troy has, you know, kind of the ambassadorial oh, negotiating experience? That's such a better episode. 
Yeah, well, they were never like, oh, maybe Troy will do a negotiation. They're like, well, will she fall in love or will she be threatened sexually? Right, yeah. Now I'm, there's an episode in my mind where it's we've got an empath on one side and an empath on the other side, and they're trying to out-empath each other. Exactly. You could keep the romance, but it's far more kind of involved in the episode because I, it's interesting. This is Troy's episode, and it's all being told largely from her perspective. Yeah. But the vast majority of the actual plot, she's not directly involved in. <laughs> yeah, right. She just comes in at the end to save the day, sort of. Yeah, well... Rawl is the kind of the connecting thread between, uh, you know, the wormhole storyline and then the romance storyline. And he kind of keeps going back and forth. She's isolated in part of the episode. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. In the original series, you get male crew members treating their co-workers respectfully. You know, we're all one happy crew. But th- there's always be this subtext of like, well, one day she's going to find a man and then she's going to be out of the service. Yeah, when she's getting married so that she can't work on a spaceship anymore. That's right. Yeah, mission accomplished. Her her mission is over. Mm. Um, I also wanted to talk about, just in terms of female storylines, like Yar as a character, it's disappointing because, I don't know, maybe the show never would have become what it had if she hadn't left, but we never really got to see her develop uh, as we see Troy do. And she literally comes from the rape planet, which is like, really problematic i don't know what they're trying to do there like the show tng seems to go to the rape well often which don't go to that well i don't like that well get your water somewhere else (laughs) yeah they're self-consciously trying to do these stories about violation and they never end up saying much about why things like that happen you know from in a culture or the culture that creates situations where that can happen uh alien Mm -hmm. cultures in this case because you know the federation has it all figured out yeah they've evolved beyond it but uh, that means that they never really make any very human statements about the topic. Yeah, which is something that the writers of the show always, you know, you always hear them complain about the fact that, at least in the early days, Gene never wanted conflict. And they're like, hi, I'm a writer and I'm going to need some conflict here. Perfect people are boring heroes. Yeah, I think that's very interesting that that's a common complaint that they had about the next gen. I wonder if he got stricter about that in his old age, because, I mean, TOS had a lot of conflict. Yeah. Uh, into wise I mean, they were always trying to recreate the dynamic, the triumvirate dynamic in different ways in all the different shows. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I always wonder what he means by conflict because it's like, you. yeah, you're absolutely right. Like that trio of characters who are all sort of not trying to undermine and destroy each other, but are certainly disagreeing with each other is replicated again and again uh, throughout the franchise. Well, in this episode, I mean, in my article, I mentioned that uh, Troy was originally sold as kind of a Spock character. And it is interesting that she is kind of the half alien, half human uh, on the crew. Yeah. And she does say that, like, she's been an outsider because of her, (laughs) you know, individual identity. Yeah. Um, So there's a lot of similarities between them, but you never really think about it because... They're so different otherwise and that she's all emotion and he's all logic. But they could have been set up as a foil in that way. But I guess they were never really interested in exploring that. Could have been developed and never is. Yeah. Or they got lost, you know, or on the way to somewhere else or had a different idea. I think as that sort of, you know, hippy dippy, mental, mystical character, she also becomes the focus of the sort of... The, the kind of thing that sci-fi auth- uh, authors definitely do where like you know, women, they're so magical, they're so strange, they're connected to something else. She becomes like the sort of focus and receptacle of a lot of those plots on the show. Yeah. What are women thinking? We don't know, even if they're psychic. Yeah, they know what we're thinking, but we don't know what they're thinking. Yeah, she, like I read in your article about the Spock thing, um, I also read that she was initially based on Ilya, um, the s- character from the motion picture. Um, remember the bald lady from the motion yeah. picture? Yeah, which we never find out much about because she's also kind of like, ooh, she's so strange, and, and then she becomes a robot lady. Yeah, but, I mean, Jean did manage to sneak in there that she's from a very sexy planet. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and there, there's a makeup person who's saying, how many boobs now? No, no, we're just going to do two. Uh, and I think uh, David Gerald once said about Troy that he and Bob Justman had been talking about the character and her development, and they they had this idea in their mind about this person who's you know the emotional healer on the show. Um, they don't have religion anymore, of course, because they're rational. But in this post-religious sort of world, she's their kind of spiritual master. 
Yeah, I mean, I see that. I think that she does fit into the um, – because, I mean, in the original series, they had a very easy formula that, um, you know, Kirk would have a problem and he'd talk to Bones and Spock and they would say the opposite thing and then he would choose something else. Yeah. And on The Next Generation, it's kind of like Picard will have a problem and he has like 700 people to talk to. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But he will often go to Troy to get kind of the emotional or the ethical reading on the situation. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess she's kind of the spiritual leader, the one who's like, is this good or bad? Yeah, and also in the original sort of concept of the entire show, you know, Picard was conceived as a very uh, unemotional, sort of cold and detached character and like sort of emotionally tone deaf. And that changed because, I mean, Patrick Stewart, come on, but Mm. she was supposed to be the person to kind of remind him to have feelings every once in a while. And they dropped that and thank God. But I like the fact that Picard still, like, as you said, respects her opinion. She is somebody who is in Starfleet. She is part of the space military, but she serves this very specific role. And I love that character that the leader turns to um, when they don't know what to do. Like we've got that with McCoy and Spock and Janeway is always like kind of in her private moments is like turning to Tuvok, you know, like, I don't know what's going on. Like, what do you think? Like, I like that second character who's there to sort of like back them up. I've always liked uh, Troy and Picard's relationship because they just respect each other a lot. And yeah. he actually treats her a lot. I mean, a lot of the show is about how he, well, I mean, like, you know, with the finale and everything, it's about how he was always trying to keep himself separate from the crew a bit. <laughs> yeah, but right. I say, in the beginning, I think Troy was one of the people he was like willing to, to open up a bit to, probably because she is a therapist. Yeah. And I'm glad that it developed the way it did, but he could have easily used her as, you know, his um, person to to feel, basically. Like, he could have stayed Mm -hmm. cold and then been like, oh, wait a minute, I have to, what does the crew think? I'm asking you not because I care, but because I need to know so I can, you know, present this front that seems sympathetic to their emotions. But it it does never go that way. I do love in this episode, I mean, they kind of moved away from him being emotionless, but he remained very quid as a person which i love especially in the opening scene where he's like we're having a party please come i don't want to speak to people and she's like oh i don't know if i can he's like it'll be fine you just throw anything just on. Not reading yeah right <laughs> uh what did you think about that opening scene like it we definitely begin with troy's point of view even though we we leave it later on and i i don't know just as like i guess as a, a female viewer what did you think they were trying to accomplish in that scene pretty good i mean it set up a lot about troy very quickly it's like she's you know hard working individual she's tired after a long day's work she has a mother yikes <laughs> yeah. she loves chocolate <laughs> yeah she's also she, I mean, she's getting some official sounding mail from like the uh, psychiatric association or something like that yeah continuing education material always important to stay on top of your field right right <laughs> get your journals uh, I think we learn more about her in that, like, 90 seconds than we do in, like, you know, 90 hours of uh, of other episodes or what's come before. Um, did you know that originally Denise Crosby was slated to play Troy? Yes, they swapped um, yeah. roles. Yeah, yeah the, the character of Yar, I guess somebody saw Aliens and really liked the character Ramirez in that film. And they actually wanted to get Jeanette Goldstein, the woman that plays uh, Ramirez in Aliens to play the character Macha Hernandez. Uh, but then the cooler heads prevailed. They're like, let's not just copy them. And so they developed the character of Yar. And yeah, they were pretty much locked in to have Denise Crosby play this cool Icelandic blonde, in her words, version of the character. And then they saw Marina Sirtis and heard her read and thought, let's swap these because Marina's got, in you know, the words of Gene Roddenberry, this more exotic uh, quality that they wanted to have in Troy. Yes, uh, that's a great verb to be described to a human being. Exotic. You're Everybody so, loves it. Yeah, you're so exotic. You're so not like me. Mm. You're alien-like. Yeah, you're alien. Because you're not blonde. Right, and you've got completely black eyes, which is strange. I like the black eyes uh, uh, character design. I think it's a, you know, because so much of Star Trek aliens is like, how can we make them look different to humans, but still sexy? <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, um, and they they managed to do that uh, over time with Troy. Um, she had a just a, a whole slew of kind of impractical uh, outfits, 
which changed over the course of the show. And I've heard a lot of people talk about how uh, once we hit, I think, the, like the middle of the sixth season, somebody makes her put on like a regular uniform. And she basically just wears that for the rest of the show. And it's great. And it seems totally normal. And you think, like, why wasn't she wearing this the whole time? Yeah. And um, once her cleavage goes away, her brains come back. She gets a promotion? Uh, there's a, once she put on the uniform, there's a point where she's explaining uh, Romulan engines to uh, Data and Geordi. And she's like, is their cleavage out? Why don't they know about this? I do. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's a great episode when she goes uh, undercover uh, as a Romulan. Yeah, so apparently, like, you know, during the first season, she was constantly in danger, uh, Troy, of being written out of the show. Because you had all these other Yes, she thought she was going to get fired. Yeah. And then at the end, other two women got fired. <laughs> yeah. And she was like, is this a win? I don't know. Yeah. Um, I just think it's weird that, I mean, she lucked out there, obviously. But, like, it's weird that, like, wow, men can't seem to figure out how to write like a capable, knowledgeable woman who also has an edge. You know, she she knows what people are thinking. But, you know, the other two characters left. So, yeah, I guess you get to stay. It's like, you're tricky, but you're still here. <laughs> you're tricky, but you're, you're, you're around. Yeah, so you get to stay. Uh, in your article for the Mary Sue, uh, which is called A Spirited Defense of Deanna Troy, uh, you point out that Troy is often characterized as uh, girly, weak, and useless, uh, end quote, and the character is seen as over-sexualized, underwritten, and problematic. As you were preparing the article, did you get the sense that the overall opinion of Troy in Trek fandom was negative? Well, I did a bit of research because it's sometimes hard to find out what people think en masse because, yeah. you know, you cultivate your own experience, and I've cultivated a, a place on the internet in my life where everyone's like, yeah, I do love Troy. <laughs> so I had to go out there and Google like Troy bad. Troy bad. <laughs> and there is a lot of just kind of, nobody hates Troy passionately, but they're always like, oh yeah, she's useless. <laughs> um, and everyone's always saying like the, some guy's yelling and she's like, he's angry. I'm like, I've never actually seen the episode where she's like, he's angry. Yeah. Uh, it seems kind of apocryphal to me. People need to learn to articulate themselves better because if what they're saying is that they're frustrated with the lack of what the show did with her and her potential, I agree. People always say they hate Keiko and it's like, don't you hate the depiction of her as a kind of naggy wife? Don't I mean, don't you love Rosalind Chow's performance? Don't you love how supportive Keiko is uh, not only as a wife, but she's, uh, you know, an at alien botanist as well and like underneath like she's a really great character you just don't like the fact that miles wants to go drinking and she says no you can't it's not like an andy cap comic exactly if people uh have criticisms of troy that are more thoughtful i'm usually like yeah it's only when they're like well she sucks i'm like no she doesn't suck because she's not real uh she's a talented <laughs> actress and an interesting character who was let down by the context in which she was created. Yeah. I've heard a lot of fans say, um, fans who hear uh, Marina speak or have met her, that they should have made Troy more like her because Marina is somebody who is self-confident and outspoken and that Troy could have used some more of those qualities. Yeah. No, she's great. I'm a big fan of Marina. I always liked the character. I think when I was young, because probably because she was so pretty, you know, I, I really liked her, but I really appreciate now like her strength of character and the fact that in addition to being a skilled officer like her reactions to things come from a place of literal empathy not just psychic empathy like the more military characters on the show always say they want to settle things peacefully but also they've got the phasers warmed up and there's this episode i remember from the first season it's the one where yar dies skin of evil where Troy is trapped on this planet and she's sort of separate from the crew and the crew is trying everything they can think of to get rid of this oil slick bad guy. And as soon as they leave, the bad guy comes back and talks to Troy and she's just honest with him about like feeling scared and she's concerned about the situation. And she identifies that this guy is just a knot of rage and pain and she kind of starts to therapize him a little bit. <laughs> and, and the key to defeating him ultimately in the episode is getting him to confront all the negative emotions that he's externalizing on everyone else. Yeah. I mean, she's an interesting character in that way because she is very different to most of the other characters. Um, and that could have been explored a lot better. But when you see it in episodes, I always find it really interesting. Yeah. That she's kind of always coming at things from a, an emotional, moral, emp empathetic center, which is an interesting perspective that you don't often see in maybe space shows as much because there's always the danger in the explosion. <laughs> right, right. 
And especially in this world that they've created of Trek, where it's this, you know, utopian socialist future, you've got guys running around who are ready to shoot aliens if they have to. But she and characters like her, I think, represent the sort of torchbearers of that idea. Like it would be great if at every planet we could just beam down, talk to people, figure it out, you know, have a party and move on. Uh, And I guess we can't because we have to have some explosions. It's a sci-fi show. But I like the fact that she represents that. Yeah, she's kind of holding the ideals of the show in in a way where you can see them being enacted in everyday life or in everyday Starship adventures. Yeah, I think it's possible. And I wish that people would. uh, I think it's possible to look back and just try to overlook the stiff character they give her and some of the dumb plots that you see her in. And see her as just a member of the crew. She's filling this role that nobody else can. You mentioned in the, in your article the idea of, like, this is my city now. Like, we're claiming this bit of canon and we're going to redeem it. That's kind of like how I feel about Troy. Yeah. No, I, I really love that idea that, yeah, media is a two-way street. You interpret media. Yeah. So when it lets you down, you can just be like, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. This is what I think about it. Yeah, I fixed it for you. I think this episode is maybe her first good episode. I yeah, I think maybe. I think it's got a very interesting uh, center at the heart of it, an ex- an examination of uh, her empathy powers and how she feels about them, kind of yeah. morally, and how she yeah. thinks about her powers and how she's using them, which is a very interesting conceit. Yeah, because the argument, the central conflict for her between her and Devoni is that she's saying, "I think the way that you're using these powers we share is unethical," and he's like, "Or is it? Or is it?" <laughs> and you kind of she has to define what she thinks in opposition to him. Yeah, I mean, he is really like her foil in this episode. The character of Raoul himself is—he's something else. I, I've I've heard it remarked that the actor and Marina Sirtis had no on-screen chemistry. And, oh, God, they had less than no chemistry. Yeah, I guess I agree. <laughs> the plot line really fails because of the complete lack of kind of convincing chemistry between them. I think the, the character of Devoni, I don't want to criticize the actor. He's out there. He's getting his money. But he just doesn't really work, and it's the main flaw in the episode. And I'm not, he's just such a trash man. And I'm not sure if they were writing him as a villain the whole time and didn't want to give him too many redeeming qualities, but there's nothing <laughs> good about him. Yeah, I think, well, I mean, maybe if she needed some auto insurance, it would have been fine. Uh, I, I think yeah. the key is that, it, I think it is the actor. I don't think, I've seen that actor and stuff, and I think he's good at, like, the thing that he does, but they needed a different, more charming actor, because he's kind they of... They needed someone charming. They needed someone with sex appeal. I mean, the whole episode, I'm like, maybe the writer's don't know what sexy is because they're like what's sexy a full like 30 seconds close-up of someone oily massaging someone else's foot and i was like no this is not what sexy is uh yeah that came uh too young for me so now that is what i think sex is but uh oh no that's yeah. It cost Look, me a fortune in oil. Star Trek will always give you some weird ideas about what sexy is. Yeah. It just depends what episode you watch at what time. Yeah. My bedroom smells like fried chicken. It's, it's a disaster. Um, no, I just like, yeah. Like, did you see, remember the episode, the, the outrageous Okana? Oh, yeah. And they're like, he's so sexy. And you're like, no. Well, once again. <laughs> well, okay. I, I think they lay that on thick. But Bill Campbell, as an actor, is like, good looking and he's affable and i think you could put like kill them all like in his mouth you know and it, it, it would, you'd kind of be like oh, maybe they need to die like you needed somebody that just has that that uh, quality of an actor that charisma the where twinkle. you the twinkle the twinkle yeah this guy lacked the twinkle for sure yeah i think that often troy episodes are very good for Riker because Riker's is a character people can be up and down on but i think he's best in conjunction with troy because uh Jonathan Frakes and Marina did have that chemistry. Yeah. And even in the limited ways they interact in this episode, there is that twinkle and that charm. Yeah. Also, I think that, you know, this is a good episode for him because Devoni, being a real creep trash man, is like, wow, I own Troy now. And um, <laughs> Reich is a real woke bay and is like, nobody owns anybody. If you make her happy, I'm happy. And I was like, nice. Yeah, he, that, Brings me to the point I wanted to touch on, which is just him being a raw representative of this kind of gross, toxic view of like interacting with women. Like he's 
he, I mean, he's negging her like all the way through the episode. He's doing so much negging. I wrote that down in my notes because he's always like, ooh, Counselor Troy. I'm like, she literally Here just she is. You yeah, right. <laughs> She's trying to have a conversation with you. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, he's just gaslighting the hell out of her. Oh, look, everybody. Here comes Counselor Troy. So charming. And it's supposed to be like that he can sense what she truly wants. But, you know, men in real life thinking they know what a woman truly wants is creepy. So he comes off as really creepy when he's, like, pushing into her room and, like, touching her hair and always being so aggressive and being like, we're actually going to do this because I know you want it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> space Robin thick. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He literally negs her room, like, when he comes in. He's like, oh, nice room. But yeah, he's like, this is trash. <laughs> style. Which, I mean, to be fair, the interior decorating on the well, uh, Enterprise yeah. <laughs> is bad. But, like, it's rude putty. to say that. Yeah. And her response is, like, champagne. Like, I need to get drunk for this. Mm. I, uh, yeah, the hair thing, I do not understand. I, I think it's something that a sci fi writer thinks would be really hot, but it's like, no, don't, please don't touch my hair. Well, I mean, you can do like a letting the hair down scene, which is good, but it was like even badly blocked that he's just like jabbing his head, hand into her hair, and she's like, oh, what? And he's just yanking it out in front <laughs> of my her neck. And I'm like, wow, <laughs> so romantic. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I I do like that scene that you brought up between him and Riker where he tries to play, you know, the Troy card. He wants to dick joust with Riker and Riker is sort of like the opposite. He's like, like you said, a woke guy or a guy who's like non-toxic in that he's like, I don't care, you know, and, and you are such a piece of trash. You could actually use somebody to improve you or, or point out what a piece of trash you are. Yeah, he really burns he in there. Him. That was a good scene. I mean, yeah. Even in that scene, Devon is more interested played against Riker than he is against Troy, which just shows that, I don't know, maybe they didn't cast it right. Yeah, I think that's probably, once again, I guess I'm not going to get my insurance, but uh, I think you're probably right about that. Do you think, oh, so it doesn't work, we agree, but do you think that the show ultimately wants us to empathize, uh, no pun intended, with... No, I think that's another problem with them, that they want us to that he's not a good guy and they want us to not regret that Troy doesn't go with him at the end. So they set up all this stuff about how secretly bad he is, but they forget to get any good stuff on top. They're just banking on the fact that we're going to think he's sexy. And if that doesn't work, which it doesn't really, yeah. uh, the character's kind of played out before it even begins. That's interesting. I, I kind of saw it as they have that scene where he opens up to her about his heritage. And I felt like they were trying to make him, sort of attractively vulnerable in that moment. And then also like his philosophy is ultimately, Hey man, I just, this is the life I live. I'm a gunslinger. I I'm a poker player and I don't, you know, I win when I win. I don't take it hard when I lose. Although he does come crawling back in the, in the last scene. Yeah. Um, I like that. He was like, after all the, the counselor Troy nagging, he's like, be my conscience. And she's like, I already have a full-time job. I have a job. <laughs> yeah. Right. No, don't let the door close on your ass on the way out. Yeah. Though he's like, you know, he leaves and she's just like, you know, a, a moment of vulnerability on Troy's face. I'm like, yeah, but we're not sad that he's going. They should have ended it with her finally getting that chocolate. Get your Sunday, Sunday girl. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, do you think so in this later they have this later dinner scene where they're eating and she kind of confronts him and he tries to project his lack of ethics, you know, on her. I mean, he's, now he's ethically negging her. What, what do you think about her powers? Do you think her powers are ethical? Well, I think it's very interesting in this episode how they explore whether or not it's ethical. Yeah, um, because telepathy and empathy are always quite intrusive powers. And it's interesting that she has her own moral code that she sticks to, which is like she can't turn it off. It's who she is. But she's always open about it and people are aware of it and that she uses it in a way that she feels is constructive and tries to help people. And that's how she deals with the ethical ramifications. And I think his argument's really interesting because he's like, oh, you use your powers in life or death situations and I only use mine for capitalism. So who's really evil? And I'm like, that's a really weird argument because if you tried that with any other superpower, it's like, oh, yeah, you only use your superpowers, your super strength to like fight the evil bad guys. But I just use mine to rob banks. So who's the real bad guy? <laughs> yeah, that's that's a great example. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe it is a real a conflict between uh, capitalism and, uh, you know, I don't know, socialism or, or communalism or something in that they both have it. Yeah, they have. A, he has an advantage 
uh, that he uses for a personal gain. And she has an advantage, but she uses it to share and help the most amount of people. I like, too, how she resolves it uh, in the end because, you know, she does it by... Like doing her job really well, she advises the captain. She re- also she reveals her conflict of interest. Um, yeah, in the situation. But Ral put himself in that situation when he planned a fake scene in front of an empath. Yeah, exactly. It wasn't a great plan unless he was trying to like do a test of Troy to see if she would side with him or not. Oh, do you think that like winning her at that point he didn't care about the wormhole and like maybe winning her heart was like his ultimate like stratagem? I don't know. I think it was like. Well, he says, like, you know, I had to do it. And she's like, you know, I couldn't stand by it. So I think it was a last minute gamble where he would either get the wormhole or get her. And in the end, he gets the wormhole, but it's worthless. So, Interesting. OK. OK. So either like she's completely unassailable ethically and I guess maybe no use to him or maybe there's a chink there in the armor and I can like and get get her that way. Huh. Mm. Well, that's cool. I, I also like the twist in the situation in that. She's technically not sensing anything. <laughs> like, it's a lack of emotion that gives the game away. Yeah. Well, the idea about the kind of uh, plot hole that she senses a Ferengi is lying when they can't sense Ferengi. It's like, oh, the Ferengi's on the view screen. They're lying. You don't need to be <laughs> yes, psychic. Right. Like, I wonder if he's telling the truth. A little applied so racism. Like, <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, maybe. I love the Ferengi. I, I do they're too. Such, um, they're so dumb. I love them. <laughs> Yeah, um, I they add uh, there's there's some good comedy bits in this episode, and they definitely um, add the them. whole bit with the chair is actually <laughs> so, very funny. I know it's like a like a vaudeville routine, but yeah, it's so great. I also like when they uh, go through the wormhole to the Delta Quadrant, and then Jordy's like, "Look, we got to get out of here. You know, we'll see you guys later." And they're like, "Ha, huh, there it is, right on time." And then it takes off. And they don't say anything, but they're both oh, like, yeah. "Oh!" <laughs> they're gasping. Are so funny. Yeah. They're like, oh! <laughs> I don't know if this if something was wrong with my TV, but the color satur- saturation seemed to be turned way up in this episode. Everybody looked like they just got back from a run. Like they all looked very red, except for Marina, they of did, course. They're very shiny. Yeah, yeah. The lipstick is um, a different color than usual. That was distracting me too. It was like very saturated, pinky red. Yeah, yeah. To contrast with, I did like that uh, the blue dress though. Oh, that's a great dress. All of her, I mean, it's it's sexist and demeaning that she was forced into so many skin-tight outfits, but she's always looking bomb, so. Yeah, she's owning it. Uh, okay, let's do it. We're, we're near the end here, so let's let's talk about the yoga scene. The yoga, okay. Save, well, save the cherry on the Sunday for last here. Those outfits. I mean, it's actually a nice scene in that, you know, it's the two of them being friends and, you know talking about their emotions, decompressing. So character-wise, it's good. But then they put them in not only just sparkly leotards, (laughs) but both of them are designed to not support the breasts in any way. They are probably the worst thing you could exercise in. (laughs) Yeah, I hadn't thought of that, but that's that's true. I I don't want to... It's with the matching ballet flats in the same color, and I'm like, that's hard to do i guess it's all replicated yeah (laughs) right (laughs) i I don't want to like uh cast it uh disparagingly as like girl talk but i think yeah like you said like them just kind of sharing stuff like you don't get a lot of scenes of two women just doing stuff of course it doesn't pass the bechdel test because they're talking literally about a man the entire time but they're really kind of talking about her enjoyment of this experience that she's having yeah, they're talking about their experiences with love and, like, sure. you know, sharing examples with each other. And she's saying, like, should I slow down? And Beverly's giving bad advice. And I did like the bit in the middle <laughs> where Gates McFadden is like, I can do the splits. And I was like, yes, you are an accomplished dancer <laughs> yes, and choreographer. Thank you, Gates McFadden. Yes. <laughs> so, okay. Uh, technicality there. I think it passes. I was off laughing just at the very beginning of the episode. Like, she's like, give me that chocolate sundae. And I guess the replicator's like, no, you're on a diet. Like, it, it can't give <laughs> her. Like, everyone's on a diet. But I was, I was, that's another example of someone on Star Trek trying to argue with the computer like it's a person. Right. I'm like, you could probably just, like, go through the fields and ask for this. But instead, she's like, now, listen here, computer. And the computer's like, I'm a, I'm a computer. Let's, <laughs> let's chill for a second. The computer needs a subroutine to remind you that it's a computer. Yeah, there are, it's, it's such a big part of Star Trek, though, people talking to the computer and trying to argue it out. And I'm like, you could probably just hack it, maybe. 
No one's ever thought of that, like, subroutine, um, I don't know any hacking words. <laughs> Space bar. You're close. Return key. I'm just reading off my keyboard return now. Key. That's how you hack. <laughs> Is it page up? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Make Sunday bracket real. And then the computer's like, you've got me, finally, after all this time. How many do you want? I have to be on Sunday. <laughs> right. Well, uh, I think that about covers it. Is there anything you can think of that we haven't reached or talked about uh, for the price? Uh, I just have two things. Yeah. I love I love the Ferengi also in great sparkly outfits. Obviously a theme of this episode. Yes. And I particularly love when he like comes to the table with his gold. He's kept his gold in a pink sparkly sack. <laughs> and I'm like, what an aesthetic. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I've seen, what a touch. I've seen dice bags like that amongst my role-playing friends. Mm, he was like, what's really going to impress the people at the table? I'll get all my gold and just some pink sparkly velour. Yeah. <laughs> and I love uh, Geordie and Data's little adventure in the dinkiest looking cardboard box of a set. Yeah, they didn't spend much time on that one, <laughs> but it's. I think it's supposed to be no. real economy shuttle. Yeah. It looks like on um, like community when they're in their cardboard box spaceship. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because it's so small, but you know what? Data was ready to spend the rest of their lives in there because they're best friends. <laughs> right. I always wonder too about like whenever you see, especially in the scene, the the quote unquote love scene in this, they have this um, the oil and they're wearing loose clothing, but then they've got like that space blanket there's like a metallic weave sort of blanket oh, yeah. it would be so uncomfortable to lay down on much less anything else all the outfits in this episode were great i like their later date outfit where he's wearing like a towel just kind of <laughs> yes. wrapped around him yes and in the hd they i'm sure they didn't plan on this in uh back in 89 but when he stands up in hd you can totally see his tidy whities <laughs> Yeah, so fantastic costuming all round. That's my last note. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, now that we're at the end of the episode, let's talk My Space Dad Can Beat Up Your Space Dad. Who's your favorite captain and why? Oh, this is such a difficult question. They're all my dads, except for Janeway, who is my mom, Who's I guess. Who's space mom. They, I love them all so much. They could all be I, your space dads and moms. It's true. We have no restrictions. I think I have to choose Kirk because... Every captain post Kirk is a response to Kirk in some way. Yeah. So in choosing Kirk, I'm choosing all of them. I have said that exact thing on this show. So oh. thumbs up from me. Great minds think alike. I guess so. Well, so then tell me uh, if you get a commission in our little Starfleet here at the rank of Ensign, what department on our ship do you work in? Oh, communications. Uh, definitely communications. That's what I'm already sort of working in now. Mm -hmm. And I also have a, a major in linguistics. Okay. Um, and I always loved the bits where we were talking about xenolinguistics and the possibility of alien languages. Mm, okay. Not a very fruitful subject at the moment, but if I was in Star Trek, oh, I'd be ready. So this would be a situation where you've uh, got a, a thing in your ear like Uhura and you're running the, uh, the communications, the frequencies and speaking all the languages. Yep frequencies doing some alien translating i would love to figure out how the universal translator works oh my god me too i, I was watching a voyager episode recently uh where they long story short they find some humans that from earth's past and they're all different ethnicities and like there's a japanese guy and there's an indian woman and there's like you know americans and they can all understand janeway and she can understand them because universal translator but i'm like wait how does that work does it is it like a Bluetooth speaker on her chest and the sounds come from there? Do you know what I mean? Like if you meet. I think it's in their brain. I think it's a chip. Oh. Oh, it's in their brain? Yeah, because the episode where the Ferengi go back to uh, Roswell and their universal translator is not working, they try and whack their heads. <laughs> That's very scientific of my understanding of how it works. Okay. But... okay. I always assumed that that was some Ferengi variation of it. But okay. Oh, that could to that totally makes sense. I've always wanted an episode where the universal translator goes down on the ship. I mean, they did that a little bit in Discovery. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. was just the beginning of the episode. I'd love a whole episode where that's just the conceit that no one understands each other. Well, I can tell you that Farscape absolutely did an episode like that. And uh, your, yeah. your countrymen figured it out because they just said, oh, it's translator microbes. We're done. Yeah, yeah, Babelfish. We'll never talk about it again. Yeah, so, Babelfish, exactly. The interesting point is that the Uhura on the Enterprise is Worf. 
Yeah, right. He's technically in charge of communications. No one ever thinks that because he doesn't have a cool earring and he's not in a miniskirt, which I believe they should have fixed. Well, they had those scans. They had the scans, but he wasn't wearing it. I think it's part of the communications desk. You have to have a nice little skirt and a big earring. <laughs> okay. Michael Dorn could have pulled it off. All right, wish list for Picard. We want to get Michael Dorn in a scan and get Troy back. Yeah, that that is literally all I want. That would be the perfect show. I'm down for that. Well, Anson Liston, thanks for joining me to talk about Star Trek in the Star Trek universe. If people want to continue the conversation, and they can, at at EISTpod on Twitter and the Enterprising Individuals Facebook page, where can people find you online? Um, I'm at Bonnie Liston, or Bonnie Mary Liston on Twitter. I don't know. My Twitter's not big yet. It's going to take off. It's good. Uh, but yeah, you can find me online at Bonnie Mary Liston, which has the links to all of my, BonnieMaryListon.com, which has links to all of my many projects. Okay. And yeah, you can find me on Instagram, Bonnie Liston Art. That sounds great. Thanks again for joining me. Thank you for having me. I've had a wonderful time. We are signing off until the next mission. Hailing frequencies closed. It's on your mind.